This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello there, it's Jamila Jamil. Are you by any chance listening to this podcast promo while out on a walk? If so, good for you. That's going to make both your mind and your body feel better. On my podcast, I Weigh, this month, we're going to be exploring mental health and talking to amazing guests about other things that you can do to make yourself feel better with guests like Simon Sinek from The Optimism Company, therapist Vienna Farron, comedian Neil Brennan, and more. Listen to I Weigh wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm actor and comedian Griffin Newman. And I'm film critic David Sim. Together, we host Blank Check, a movie podcast where week by week we overanalyze directors' complete filmographies. In each new series, we discuss filmmakers who experience early success and are issued a series of blank checks by Hollywood to make their own crazy passion projects. Now, sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they bounce, baby. We're joined each week by incredible guests, including actors, writers, and directors. So you can follow Blank Check with Griffin and David on Spotify for new episodes every Sunday. The year is 2017, and just like my Aunt Lucy said, if you're kind and polite, the world is right. And the same holds true for any comments about this show on social media. The movie, Paddington 2. Everyone and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson and I am Paul Shear and this is the podcast where we are trying to find the hundred best movies ever made, and we are currently in the middle of our summer series of heroes. And what better hero than a little bear named Paddington? Today we're talking about Paddington Two. Last week we talked about Super Cop. And there was a lot of interesting debate on Supercop, a lot of talk about Jackie Chan's work, and I'm still feeling the repercussions of RRR. People are continually reaching out to me. I see this movie spreading. I believe this is going to be the underground hit of the summer, Amy. RRR? Yes. Absolutely. Sure. (laughs) Um, and now I also have to say, like, we are in the middle of the summer box office right now. Maverick is still going very strong. Hero, right? We're talking about the heroes of Jurassic Park Dominion. Are they all heroes? I guess. I haven't We're seen talking it. about the heroes of Minions Rise of Gru. Oh, well, we haven't even gotten to that yet. We are waiting <laughs> very much in bated breath over here about Minions. Probably by the time you hear this, Minions will be out and I will be front and center. But we did go see the new Buzz Lightyear movie, which I think you and I both really like, but I've seen the reaction to be pretty mixed. Uh, And I wanted to talk to you about it briefly because that is a hero. I don't think the movie is worthy for this series or even really for a recap episode, but I just wanted to kind of hear what you thought about it because I kind of enjoyed it as far as a very simple space movie. You know, I kind of enjoyed it too. And I want to talk delicately, so I'm not spoiling it for people who haven't had a chance to see it yet. 
but it is trying to be one of those movies that like questions the purpose of the hero. Is the is the hero's idea of what a hero is truly what a hero should be? I thought it did a decent job of taking maybe like my favorite 30 seconds of all Pixar and then turning that into like the premise of a movie. My favorite 30 seconds being like the the montage of Up where everybody gets old very, very fast and you get to see the arc <laughs> of a life. Like that is somehow the underpinning of Lightyear, which I was not expecting in the slightest when I went down to sit into it. Also, pretty good cat character for Pixar. Historically, I, I would say an anti-cat production company. And yes, the cat is a robot, technically not quite a cat. And their last cat oh, was a human, technically a not cat. quite a cat. They have issues with cats, but good cat. I see the cat is trying to sell toys. I'm okay with that cat selling toys. Well, here's my question, Amy. If I'm Andy... And this is not a spoiler, but the first thing that you see is a title that comes up that explains that in 1995, Andy saw this movie, and that's where he fell in love with Buzz Lightyear. And my big question was, if I'm Andy in 1995, I'm not asking for Buzz, I'm asking for Socks. I want Socks the Cat. We could have had a whole different Toy Story with Socks the Cat and Woody, and I would have been psyched about it. I totally agree. And I want to ask you, you know, we recently did aliens on this mm -hmm. show. All of the aliens re references in Lightyear. I was, I was, I was just counting them off of my fingers. Yeah. But my favorite one was like, you know, they, um, not only is there an orange cat, not only is there grappling with time lost as you are out in outer space, but there is a, a tiny robot character who like wheels by and he has written on his like robot carapace, um, El Riesco Siempre Vivre. Which is, you know, what um, Vasquez has oh, written wow. on her machine gun. Then, you know, I posture like I'm not a nerd, but the nerdiest thing I own is a tank top that has that written on it. And I love Whoa. just wearing that tank. That is my hands down nerdiest piece of clothing. And so to <laughs> see uh, a robot wearing that, I was like, oh, this is what it feels like to be a nerd and see some nerd wearing your nerd shirt and feel excited that you own that nerd <laughs> shirt. And I, I have to call myself out because I know I make fun of nerd stuff. And there I am being a nerd. I guess what I really liked about the movie, ultimately, to your point, was it felt a little bit different than a Pixar movie. And I think it's one of those mergings of a Disney Pixar movie. Where does the difference end? Where does it begin? I don't know. But it felt to me much more like a sci-fi movie with a little bit of a Pixar underpinning on it. And I and I liked I was all there for that. I was I guess I just like that genre. But here's my question for you or the thing that I'm most fascinated by. Obviously, there's a lot of, uh, not press, but there was a lot of discussion around replacing Tim Allen. Tim Allen's the voice of Buzz Lightyear, but in this movie, it's Chris Evans. And what I love about this is I think that people are giving Pixar and Disney a lot of shit. Like, why didn't you put Tim Allen in this movie? But I like to view it as Chris Evans or the actor who played Buzz Lightyear, because I do believe that Buzz Lightyear is a live action movie in the Toy Story universe. Uh, was such a dick that he didn't want to voice the toy. So they had to get a sound alike and the sound alike is Tim Allen. And that gives me just a different level uh, layers. I have an Iron Man toy here that my kid has. It's not Robert Downey Jr. It's some guy who sounds like Robert Downey Jr. And not even well. So I buy it conceptually. I buy it. And then I have to look and go, well, the actor who played Woody in the Toy Story TV show, he was cool enough to be like, you know what? I know you're not paying me that much, but the kids want to hear my voice just like Patton Oswalt did when he voiced all the Ratatouille toys. So I like to look at it on a meta way of the actors who 
kind of held their ground for more money. You you seem like you'd voice a toy. Oh, God damn, yeah. I would love to voice a toy. I'm mad that we don't have, like, Funkos for the League or NTSF at this point. Um, but anyway, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I think it's getting a lot of um, just negative press, and I think part of that is because it didn't, you know, shake up the box office. But I also believe that this is the beginning of the effect of releasing things on streaming. This is like the first Pixar movie in three years that has had a theater-only release. And I do think, you know, my kids are like, what do you mean we have to go to the theater? It's on Disney. I'm like, no, it's in the theater. We went and we saw it, but it was a different experience for them. I thought that was a really, the first time I saw them irritated, they had to go to the theater because they expect it to be at home. Oh no, that scares me. That they scares love me quite deeply. other movies. They love seeing Sonic in the theater, but in their mind, Disney movies are at home. Oh, whoa. So Disney might be training their audience in the wrong direction? I think so. <gasps> oh, dear. I know. I thought that was pretty interesting. Huh. At I, least I am anecdotally. I'm intrigued to see how, well, I feel like your two kids are representative of all children that have ever walked this <laughs> earth before and after, stretching all the way back to the Neanderthal. Thank you. And going all the way ahead to whatever AI child we have in the future. Well, that is what I'm always trying to do. Represent everyone at every point in their life, just like uh, the movie <laughs> Everywhere, Everything, All at Once. You know what, uh, Amy, let's get into today's episode. It's just like my Aunt Lucy told me. Let's unspool it. The year is 2017. Trump is inaugurated as the 45th president of the United States and pushes his agenda of travel bans and a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border. The day after Trump's inauguration, millions of people around the globe joined in a women's march, which became the largest single-day protest in America. A gunman at a Las Vegas concert kills 58 and wounds more than 500. Fake news, the Dakota Pipeline, and the opioid epidemic rule the headlines, and the hot films of this year include Star Wars, Episode 8, The Last Jedi, Beauty and the Beast, live-action remake, Wonder Woman, and today's film, Paddington 2. Paddington 2, Amy, who's in it? What's it about? And can it be more cute? <laughs> Paddington 2. It is directed by Paul King. It is written by Simon Farnaby. And it is based on the book series by Michael Bond, who began writing these books in the 1950s. Uh, in the first Paddington, we are jumping into the sequel, but in the first one, a small, very polite brown bear moves from Peru to London. He's adopted by the Brown family and he is given the name Paddington when they cannot pronounce his given name. But in the sequel, Paddington, who is voiced by Ben Wishaw, has settled into his neighborhood and he wants to send a special gift home to Peru for his aunt as both a birthday present for her 100th birthday and as a thank you for helping give him a new life abroad. He picks out a one-of-a-kind vintage pop-up book of London, but a floundering actor named Phoenix Buchanan, played by Hugh Grant, steals the book first and gets Paddington sentenced to 10 years in prison. The small bear must prove his innocence to the courts with the help of his family, who's played by Hugh Bonneville, Sally Hawkins, Julie Walters, the kids are Madeline Harris and Samuel Jocelyn, and with the help of his felonious friends, most wonderfully, Brendan Gleeson as Knuckles McGinty. Take a listen. Dear Aunt Lucy, you sent me to London to find a home. I have a wonderful family. I like that you're in great shape for a man your age, Mr. Brown. Ah, thank you, Paddington. Hang on, how old do you think I am? Oh, uh, about 80. I've really got to grips with how things work. 
Oliver, come in. I'd like to get my Aunt Lucy a birthday present. How about these rolling shoes? Please, Mr. Gruber, be serious. What's this? This popping book is the only one of its kind, and they want a lot of money for it. I'm going to get a job and buy that book. Hello, window cleaner. Paddington 2 was released in the States on January 12th, 2018, and it was so beloved that it held a 100% Rotten Tomatoes score for years. During that stretch, Rotten Tomatoes uploaded a negative review for Citizen Kane, thus allowing Paddington 2 to have the highest rating and be briefly deemed better than Citizen Kane. That did not last, but while it did, it lived up to the number one song on the charts the weekend it was released. The zeitgeist knew that this was coming because it is Ed Sheeran and Perfect. When you said you looked a mess, I whispered underneath my breath, but you heard it, darling, you look perfect tonight. <laughs> oh. That's a real earworm for you. You know what? I I have to quote David Ehrlich here, a uh, famous reviewer, who said, don't misinterpret the adjusted Rotten Tomatoes rankings to mean that Paddington 2 is now the best movie of all time. Paddington 2 already was the best movie of all time. Thank you. And I have <laughs> to agree. This movie is, like, just truly magnificent. I think it's a beautiful movie. And I'm so looking forward to talking to you about it because I think it also checks off a lot of boxes about things that we really like, things that we've been talking about. And and most importantly, I think this movie comes out at a point in our culture where it even means more, right? Because in many respects, Paddington is a an outsider, right? He is someone who's become an essential part of his community, but he's different than everyone else. And, you know, he is viewed by some people as being odd, and there's a little bit of uh, judgment of him. Like, you know, here is someone who only wants to do well, but like a local patrolman calls him an undesirable. You know, and there is something about this movie where I think the themes resonate bigger because of when it came out. Like I mentioned, it came out in 2017 and then uh, it was released in America in 2018. We were at this point where in many respects, everything foreign was bad, right? We didn't like it. We wanted them out. We didn't acknowledge anything. We didn't care. And I think this movie shares a little bit of that DNA. And I also think it's a larger message that will stand the test of time but I think the reason why people embrace this movie the way they did was because it articulated and underlined some things that were in the zeitgeist. And I think that was happening not just here in the States, but in many respects all over the world. Yeah. Yeah. I think we've been living through a getting longer and longer stretch of like countries and people closing their doors. You know, we're living in a period where there's been just like waves and waves and waves of overlapping refugee crises happening on all continents. Uh, people coming across by land, by sea, needing help. And countries, for the most part, closing their doors in a lot of instances. And, it's, and here in America, having a president who won by promising not just to lock doors, but build a wall. And so we, that when this movie came out, there was a moment of 
of we don't want your kind here. And then this being a movie very much that is an immigrant story. And in fact, with like roots that stretch back really, really far. I mean, just as kind of maybe a little, let me just do a little bit of history on like Michael Bond, by the way, like Michael Bond, who came up with the Paddington stories. He has such an interesting, interesting backstory. Like he is a kid who was only educated until he was 14 years old. And then he had to leave school in part because World War II was starting. When he is a teenager in London, uh, he is working in a building that gets bombed during the London Blitz and like 41 people in his building die. You know, so he's like living through this traumatic wartime era. He winds up joining the service, going around the world, meeting people from different countries. And he has these really visual memories that he doesn't like, that he doesn't shake of like what it was like to be a child in wartime of seeing like in London, you know, the whole setup of like the Narnia movies, right? Is that like the Narnia kids are kids who live in like in, in the city and they're sent to live with their aunt and uncle in the country because the city's being bombed, you know, because kids are dying in the city. And so they're like being sent away to safety in the countryside with like tags saying like, please take care of me. Help. I can't live in London anymore. We're being bombed. That's also happening in London. You know, you have you have Jewish children coming in from all across Europe, you know, being sent here as as like maybe the last surviving member of their family, just being sent with like kind of crossing your fingers. I hope this kid winds up somewhere safe. And so the story that Michael Bond lived through, you know, living through an era of massive continent-wide refugee crisis on his continent, you know, he puts that into the story of Paddington, which is a book he doesn't start until like he's right about 40 years old. And he comes up with this idea of an immigrant bear. Basically, like one day he was at um, Selfridges, you know, like a department store in England on Christmas Eve. Oh, and he I know. This- I've seen the Jeremy Piven okay. BBC show. Jeremy Piven brought that character to life more than the actual Selfridge. Okay, fine. But he sees this little sad bear. He brings it home for his wife because he thinks that the bear looks really lonely. And then he like he turns it into very deliberately in the 50s, a story about like, an immigrant coming to London and what is it like to learn here? I mean, like the Paddington stories that he writes all sound kind of mundane when you describe them on the surface. It's like Paddington does laundry, Paddington gets a flat tire, Paddington goes to the dentist, Paddington learns to do origami, Paddington investigates a missing marrow. Do you remember what marrow is from Wallace and Gromit? No, like bone marrow? Remember we talked about this because they like dubbed in the word marrow to melon because we don't understand that marrow is a squash. Yeah, he like investigates a squash. But the reason why all of these stories are so, you know, small and quaint is because he's capturing in a way how confusing everything is when you're an immigrant, like how much you don't know of a culture when you first arise here. And that's just like the recurring theme of Paddington. And so for it to be brought back in 2017 really hit home, like it really hit home here. And Amy, more importantly, if you can reject Paddington, I mean, then what hope does any of us have? None of us are as cute as Paddington. I mean, none of us have the charm, uh, the genteel nature of Paddington. We might come close, but we will never get to that level. So if Paddington is uh, being put to jail for a crime he didn't commit, all of us could be uh, sent down the river the same way. And I, I gotta say, one of the things about this movie is that it's so optimistic it's so pure without feeling like schmaltzy and i think that that's like a very tricky line to walk we talked about this a lot with kids movies right this idea that how do you give a moral a lesson 
how do you impart something to children in a way that they get it, but it doesn't feel like you're watching an episode of Mr. Rogers, no offense to Mr. Rogers, great show, but, uh, but that it feels a little bit more elevated than you're just watching like, you know, uh, an episode of Sesame Street. And I think this movie walks this line of creating a movie that very much is a family movie. I think it's incredibly fun for adults. I think it, it has these lessons that it imparts to adults as well as children. And I think the way that they do it is they just peel back everything to the most simplistic idea. It's not anything more than be kind to people. That's it. Be kind to people. And if you are kind to people, it will pay you back tenfold, right? Like on some level, that's the real message of this movie. And everybody is down for that message. You can always get that message. It's like I've talked to certain people like, oh, I read that book once a year to remind me about X, Y, and Z. Be kind to people is a message that I think bears repeating And in a way like this, you're like, oh, right. Like, we shouldn't be afraid of all the people that we live next to or we don't talk to. We reach out. And there's something so gentle and kind about this little bear who makes friends with everyone in the community and shows and helps each person kind of uh, without any hope of anything in return, just to do it to be a nice neighbor. And I think we definitely you know, with the advent of next door and all that kind of bullshit, like we are trained to be so suspicious of everything. And it's not even about immigrants. This is just about everybody. What went on here? Who said that? Who's on my lawn? What's going on with my car? Did you hear that dog bark? You know, everyone is angry and we're not like communicating in the simplest of gestures uh, pays off so beautifully. And maybe that's not true for everything, but it's a great way to look at life. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a bunch, I think that's a simple idea with interesting complications in the way that like the story is told. You know, like Paddington has always had this neighbor named Mr. Curry, who's like the one person who doesn't really like Paddington, Mm -hmm. is always sort of grumbling about him. By the way, I do like that idea that there's a character and who's a main character is like, I just don't like you. He's not a villain. Just, I'm not a fan. Well, yeah. I mean, that's why I feel like Nobody should care what some person has to say to you on the internet because even Paddington has a troll, you know? Right. But like, <laughs> it, it be, there's just people who hate happy people. It happens. Right. It happens. It's just a thing. And like this movie, you know, does a few things to Mr. Curry. Like it kind, it gives Mr. Curry this sort of adopted job where like he's not just a mean neighbor. He's a guy who considers himself kind of a, a low rent neighborhood cop with authority you know some Mm -hmm. it's like you see in the way they've tweaked that character the need for somebody who operates through the world with what i would say fear to cling to power as a way of saying that he's not scared the way say like when paddington gets arrested and he starts screaming at his neighbors that if only they had been more fearful like him everything would be fine we're taking him into custody oh please there must be some mistake no mistake sir what's happened caught red-handed what Robbing Gruber's antiques. Well, well, well. The truth is out. We opened our hearts to that bear. We opened our doors. Well, you did. I kept my triple locked in accordance with the guidelines. And all along, it was robbing you blind. I mean, I don't think this movie makes Mr. Curry sad, necessarily. It doesn't go out of its way to be like, here's why he's such a closed off, fearful guy. But I think he is operating from like a place of 
of of some sort of deep sadness and injury that I don't really need to have explained. But I think it's there. Like, but you get it. You get you get, you get that personality. It's, it's not a far fetched personality to have. I mean, I also say that you look at the colonel, right? This kind of shut in who uh, also isn't the most friendly towards Paddington, you know, but when Paddington uh, to earn some money uh, washes his windows. And by the way, talking about this movie, <laughs> it's just hilarious because we haven't even gotten to the jail. I mean, this is a movie where a major character goes to jail, a kid's movie where a character goes to jail. I love it. Put more characters in the in the slammer um, uh, kid characters. I mean, uh, but the colonel you know, Paddington does this gesture to wash his window, and he's maybe a little bit upset about that. But then that window being washed allows him to, like, fall in love, to see somebody outside of that window. Like, there are all these, like, beautiful little metaphors of, like, getting out of your comfort zone, you know, or 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 doing something that, you know, a, a one little kindness can blossom a, a bigger garden in a way. Right, because we get these two kind of identical montages of the neighborhood, right? Mm-hmm. Like one is the neighborhood when Paddington lives there and he's just wandering through saying hi to everybody. And you just, it, it seems like an ordinary day, but you see the joy that he brings. I really feel at home in Windsor Gardens. Bonjour, mademoiselle. Good morning, Paddington. I brought you breakfast. Thank you. Your sandwiches always put me in a good mood. Morning, Dr. Jeffrey. You haven't forgotten your keys, have you? Keys? Keys. Well caused. Thank you, Puddington. You're welcome. Glorious day, Colonel. Is it? How absolutely thrilling. How was your date, Miss Kitts? Well, he wasn't the one, but you know what they say. Pretty well measured the same. Exactly. Thank you. And then when Paddington is in prison and he's not there just to do these little things that even he isn't aware of, like that he's not even adding up, you see that his neighborhood is just like completely falling apart without somebody just putting kindness into the air. Oh, what's where you're going? I'm so sorry, sorry. Sorry, I get grumpy when I haven't had breakfast. Keys, keys, keys. Bottoms. You can't park here. I'm not parked, I'm doing the bins. You're not doing the bins, sunshine. You're studying on council time. I'm going to report you and your hat. You know, in that sequence, it's really interesting because it's not like the town turned evil, like when Biff Tannen, you know, takes over Hill Valley and Back to the Future 2. It's or, more or, the, or the rock in Pottersville that I still want to hang oh, out at someday. Oh, right, yes. I mean, it, it's more about how everyone's a little bit more isolated, right? They're back to living in their own little worlds and Paddington, I think, help people step out of their world. And I think that that was, that's what they're kind of showing, which I thought was an interesting, it's a slight distinction, but I think it's a major one. It wasn't like, you know, he kept the streets safe. Um, right. You know, and it's a, not like people are innately evil. Right. But it's like the, is there a tendency to get sort of inward and not do nice things like eat if you know it makes you less cranky? Is there, yeah. you know, to kind of walk through the world with blinders on is sort of what it feels like. I'm Katie Rich. I'm one of the hosts of Vanity Fair's Little Gold Men podcast. Every week, we cover the ups and downs of the Oscar race 
from Barbenheimer to the Golden Globes controversy, and much more. We also have weekly interviews with some of the year's biggest contenders like Emma Stone, Paul Giamatti, and America Ferreira. Whether you're a Hollywood insider or just want to win your office's Oscar pool, listen to Little Gold Men, available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now. And we're talking about this whole world and this entire movie. I think a lot of the characters really arc out, right? It's a, it's a movie where you have multiple stories. And I was thinking about this a lot. And I, I started to keep on referencing this conversation that we had about kids movies or what is a kid movie. But I think I'm starting to help understand it for myself. And why I think this is a family movie is because so many characters have arcs. And whatever that arc is that you relate to, that's something that I think makes it a family movie. For example, you know, we we are following, you know, Hugh Bonneville's character going through this, not even a midlife crisis. He feels fine, but he's being passed over at work because he's too old and he longs for being youthful again or being, you know, wanted or being recognized. You know, so we're we're catching up with him because society is deeming him not you know, what they want to see. They want younger, they want cooler, they want hipper. We have his son who is trying to be somebody different because he is a little bit of a nerd. He loves trains and, you know, he doesn't want anyone to know that. You know, everybody is going through some sort of crisis of conscience, but more than that, I think that's what makes it relatable. It's not just a movie about Paddington. It's a movie about everyone in this family, everyone going through something. And, you know, the idea that, even, you know, Sally Hawkins, by the way, the casting of this movie, this is like one of the best all time, like great British cast. This movie is so this British, this movie is so British. It like out Britishes uh, Wallace and Gromit. I mean, it's just a cavalcade of fun people that you've seen in a million different things, but also everyone bringing their A game. Sally Hawkins is so great. And she's really the main reason why uh, this whole mystery is solved you know paddington doesn't figure it out you know uh the it's a teamwork thing but she's so wonderful everyone i just want to live in these characters in this world but these characters are so well defined and it feels i think like an elevated movie because it's just not one character's journey it's you know we're watching uh knuckles you know knuckles come to enjoy like he he closed himself off to the thing that he loved, which is cooking. Like there's there are so many things here that I think uh, and and types of characters and different, you know, uh, types of people that we can really relate to. I think that's what makes it a family movie when there's a piece of a movie where everyone can relate to against the larger theme that everyone could take home. I mean, it's it's tricky because I feel like the supporting characters don't have that much space for the arc. Like, I think if you took all the minutes together that they get of each one's individual arc, each one probably has like 90 seconds of like personal arc time. You know, I'm trying to think of like all Mm. the scenes where we get to know that like the daughter is having issues with boys and so plunges herself into her newspaper career. Totally unrelatable to me. I don't understand what that is. (laughs) I never felt that way in my whole life. Uh, But but, you know, it's there in the I guess it's like it feels like it's there if you want to look hard, hard, hard for it. 
Well, but, but they all come but, up at the end. I mean, they all save every one of the things that makes them an outcast makes them save the day at the end. Well, okay. So the them save the day. That's kind of what I want to talk about is like, I couldn't remember exactly what happened in this movie before I rewatched it. And I was like, I guess he like captures Hugh Grant or something on his own. And then I realized that, no, 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 this is like a, a kind of a movie where Paddington doesn't actually do that much. It's everybody else who loves Paddington do it. Where like Well, Paddington is, is engendered is hero, this goodwill. Exactly. He is the hero who has inspired this town, but right. it is the town who actually does most of the work. Like this, if I have ever seen a movie that captures the idea of it takes a village, it's like this one. Like there's so many moments in this where like one person is not enough to do it. You know, from the very beginning opening scene, like to me, the most heroic moment that we get in the whole film is this opening scene with like his aunt and his uncle on that bridge in, um, in, in, in Peru doing an RRR bridge rescue, classic RRR bridge rescue, where they're like sitting up there, they're having a moment where they're talking about what they imagine life in England is going to be like and how kind of dreamy they are in the sequence. Just think, Bastuzo, this time next month we'll be in London. The rivers run with marmalade, and the streets are paved with bread. Did you read the book about London? I skimmed it. Pastuzo. <laughs> well, reading makes me sleepy, but any city that can come up with this is all right by me. That moment reminds me so much of like uh, one of my personal favorite movies, uh, An American Tale, where they're talking about the streets in America being paved with cheese. But yeah, then it's like. Immediately, like high action, like Aunt leaping off first to go rescue Paddington and then like her grabbing him and the uncle grabbing her and like the three of them together having to like save Paddington's life. Paddington reaching up for them. And it, it's not a one hero moment. It is a multi-hero moment. Yeah. Like like RRR. And then from there, it just gets more and there's more and more heroes in every scene. Like a car doesn't start. So the whole neighborhood pushes the car together, you know. Paddington is like trapped in a train car underwater, which, by the way, that scene is like really, really dark. Oh, you know, really Paddington's dark. It's basically like the James Bond Vesper Lynn scene from, you know, from Casino Royale. It goes on forever. Like I was yeah. going to pull how long this scene is of like Paddington underwater thinking he's going to die. His big, big brown eyes, which are already the wettest brown eyes in the world, extra wet because he's literally drowning looking into the eyes of Sally Hawkins. I'll play a little clip of it. I'm not even playing the whole thing because this scene goes on for a whole minute. That is a lot of time to sit in the water and watch this bear die. But how does he get saved? More people show up. One person can't break a lock, but like five people can break a lock. This is all about needing tons and tons of people because one hero is not big enough. Well, don't you think we live in a world where it's Often one person can save the day. One person can do it. And we, and I think it actually, in many respects, makes us not want to ask for help. It makes us not want to admit when we don't know something because it is viewed as weak. And here I would argue that, you know, very often do we have real life stories with a hero, a singular hero. Oftentimes it's multiple people working together and and especially in times of crisis, especially in these big moments, you know, it's not like, and then the one person carried all eight of them to safety. You know, it, it very rarely is like that. So I do like the idea that everyone 
can contribute. Everyone is a piece of the puzzle. And you, your job is, I mean, maybe this is, maybe I'm taking this out of context, but your job is to just be nice to everyone because you never know when you're going to need to use every, you know, if you are nice to people, people will come back and help you in any which way they can. I mean, obviously, Paddington, uh, not not a good criminal investigator. I like him for a lot of things. I mean, honestly, let's be let's be real. Paddington's not very good at any job he does. I mean, he's quite terrible. Uh, you know, he can wash windows, I guess. He I gets mean, okay at washing windows. He gets better. He gets better. I mean, but his uh, haircutting, his bar, I don't even know if I would ever hire him. I guess he wasn't hired to cut hair. He was hired just to sweep the floor. But I mean, you know, we're talking about a bear who... Uh, for the most part, is just sweet, uh, but not really a a true, uh, you know, even in the, the prison escape, he doesn't really add that much. to it. He knows how to make uh, marmalade or marmalade. Uh, but, uh, but besides that, he just knows how to love, be nice and be there for people. And maybe that is a talent in itself. Well, I mean, I want to jump back to something you just said, which is like, I don't like talking about that dude who was present when this movie came out. But there is something in talking about how it hit us there about here we have a person just inaugurated who says, I alone can do it. And then this movie is like, no, 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 no. It needs lots of people. And I do feel like that's the secondary reason why this hit so harder. It was a moment of like people here feeling like, can we band together to do anything? Can a group do anything about this time? But when it comes to like Paddington, I mean, let's talk about his quest because honestly, like, I am always relieved when a movie isn't like you have to do this or the world will die. That's like right. my least favorite plot ever. But here it's like Paddington has to get a get gift the, for get, his aunt. Get a gift. But because like, he's thankful for her. <laughs> like, I mean, it's such a sweet exactly. idea. It's like, it's like he just wants to say thank you for raising me the right way. And I want to get you something special that means something like it. Like the whole movie is truly the, the 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 catalyst is I want to do something nice for, exactly. for this person who raised me. But then think about what it takes to set things right or what he needs to do at the end. Like right. the book that he's been chasing, he doesn't ever get to keep the book. You know, the book mm-hmm. is kind of a red herring. The book is important to... A MacGuffin, if you will. I yes. know, I've been uh-huh. to AMC and drank at their bar. MacGuffins. Uh, MacGuffins. Uh, but, well, double MacGuffin because like, you know, Hugh Grant only cares about the book to get to the jewels. We see the jewels for like a minute and then the jewels go like back into the case. Nobody knows they're there again. Nobody. I don't even know if they'll ever get the jewels back out. I don't know if like the if the, if the circus owner's great granddaughter will ever get the jewels. Like the jewels are usually the most important part of the movie. And here they are not at all. The part the part. None right. of that matters. And I kind of want to say, like, if it weren't for the fact that Paddington went to prison, What's so wrong about Hugh finding some old jewels and doing his one-man show? Like, if Paddington had just sort of let him get the book and get his stuff and do his acting? I mean, the man can act. We heard him in his apartment doing all of these different voices. Oh, thank Larry it's there. Thank Larry, Johnny, and all the ghosts of the avenue. Yeah, but it was close, wasn't it? Aye, too close, if you ask me. Hold your nerve, Macbeth. Screw your courage to the sticking place. We are so nearly there. I have followed this lady through the whole of London and collected every one of her clever little clues. Aye, but what do they mean? It's just a jumble of letters, ain't it? Au contraire, mon ami. Uh-uh. They are not letters at all. They are musical notes. Indeed, Poirot. And I believe I know just where to play them. 
And Amy, you're not even mentioning his work in the, the dog food commercials. I mean, those are pretty stellar as well. Dinner is served, master. Thank you, Simpkins. If, like me, your doggy likes to maintain standards, can I recommend Harley's Gourmet Dindins? More taste, more goodness, more, dare one say, class? Mm. Harley's Gourmet Dog Food. Oh. Not to be consumed by humans. By the way, I feel like that dog food commercial is a straight up elbow to the Orson Welles commercials that we used to oh, play on here when we were talking about Absolutely. Television, which makes it even kind of meaner that there's been this whole like Paddington 2 Citizen Kane. Okay, not mean because nothing about this is mean. More pointed at the Citizen Kane Paddington 2 brouhaha on Rotten well, Titles. By the way, did we even talk about this last week when we did Supercop that if it weren't for Jackie Chan, there would be no Rotten Tomatoes in the first place? I did not know that. No, what do you mean? Okay, 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 okay. Quick history. So the man who created Rotten Tomatoes is a man named Sen Duong, and he got the idea to create the site because in 1998, when Rush Hour was coming out, Sen, who's a huge fan of Jackie Chan, was like, you know, I wish I could find more reviews of my favorite Jackie Chan movies. I want to kind of get them out there, talk about Jackie Chan, talk about Hong Kong films. So the kind of ticking time bomb of Rush Hour coming out, he was like, you know what? I got to do it. So he used that as like his impetus to code the site, pull together all his favorite Jackie Chan reviews to have it ready by the time Rush Hour came out. So if not for Rush Hour coming out in 1998, there would have been no thrust to create Rotten Tomatoes. So Jackie Chan gets you Rotten Tomatoes, which gets you to this Paddington 2 Citizen Kane fight. Had to say that really fast. Wow, that's fascinating. I Well, uh, I'm glad to know this now. Uh, I will say also, just to your point about Hugh Grant, yes, he is the antagonist of this story. But in many ways, I think you could argue that Hugh Grant is not a bad guy. And I and my point to prove it is even Hugh Grant gets to do his show, find his joy. I mean, yes, it's in prison, but he gets to get that um, that attention and that uh that chance to perform the way he's been wanting to for so long. Like even the bad guy in this movie gets his own thing. And, and I think that there is something really interesting about it. Like did, is Hugh Grant a bad guy? Technically, yes. He broke into a store and stole a book, right? That is the thing. That is his crime. And he lied on the stand about not seeing Paddington. Those are his two biggest uh, crimes and they yeah. are pretty giant. I mean, yeah. I mean in the grand scheme of Paddington things. away to prison, that's really bad. And like to see him on the stand kind of telling jokes, trying to win over the jury, that gave me the creeps. By the way, I did say to you uh, last week, and I do mean it sincerely, the fact that Hugh Grant was not nominated for Best Supporting Actor at the Academy Awards for this movie is truly uh, is a shock because I think it's such a fun performance. I like Hugh Grant. I think he's done a lot of wonderful things over his career. Uh, whether or not he's a great person, who knows? But this character really does a little bit of everything. You played the clips of him doing all the different performances. It's, it is a scene-chewing role, but it's also played so dryly. Like, I've never seen that type of character played as dry as Hugh Grant does in this film. And I think that that makes it uh, 
all the more fun to watch. And then when you do get to see him really perform or, you know, do this musical number at the end, um, he's doing all these different levels, who he's appealing to, how he's appealing to them, being embarrassed by Paddington, shushing that off, you know, being a straight up villain in moments, but the audience thinking he's a sweet guy. Like he is doing multi-level stuff throughout. I know you love to talk about Tom Cruise and all the levels that's going on there. I think Hugh Grant has a multiple levels happening in this character. I'm not saying it's the best character of all time, but I do think it is a superb performance that I believe he won a BAFTA for. Well, there's something I'm really curious about, which I couldn't get a straight answer for. I'm going to play an inter- uh, an interview clip that's like, Hugh Bonneville is going to be talking first, then the interviewer, then Hugh Grant. And in this, they put forth something that I have been unable to prove. Uh, I, well, when when Paul King, the, the writer, uh, said uh, we are considering, do you, do you think Hugh Grant would would take the joke if we <laughs> sent him a script about a washed up vain actor? I said, try him. <laughs> That's a true story because I, they actually wrote the stories from what I've read. I don't know this if it's true or not. With you in mind, they actually called the character Hugh. Is that true? Yeah, they called it Hugh Grant, for Christ's sake. <laughs> did they? So they did just went on. Okay, so when you get the script, you read it, you said, and were you quick to well, go? Well, obviously, I was very hurt. Uh, <laughs> but I, to be honest, I needed the work. So uh, I said yes. Now, I think British humor can be so confoundingly dry that I have no idea when they're being serious. I'm, I'm, I'm an... When it comes to British humor, I am a Paddington. I am completely surface level naive and I think everybody's telling me the truth and I'm always so confused when I shouldn't take things literally. So British humor, too complex for me. I don't know. If the character was actually named Hugh Grant, I find that lovely. And I feel like it makes it even better that there's just like these photos of Hugh Grant everywhere, all of those like headshots, all of those paintings of Hugh Grant. I wonder if some of those are just gifts that people gave Hugh Grant randomly and he like kept on to them and like used, let them use them for decoration here. However the case, there's like a funny connection of like the Hugh Hugh bit to this because like a movie recently came out here where another actor played a character named after his actual name. And in that movie, they talk about this movie. I'll just play that clip. Can you just stop stalling and answer the question? What is your third favorite movie of all time? Paddington 2. What? Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, Paddington 2, connect those dots. I mean, I don't want to be a snob, but... I cried through the entire thing and made me want to be a better man. Bullshit, Mom! Paddington 2 is incredible. I fucking told you. So I'm just saying, like, layers of Cage Cage, Hugh Hugh, Paddington, connecting them. Like, this movie feel, makes me feel like I've got red marmalade string, red string dipped in marmalade. And I've got, I, I, maybe, maybe I'll just say I've got stuff everywhere and marmalade fingerprints on it. Is that a better image? I mean, I, I do love that. And it seems much more, uh, you know, sticky. Uh, I will say that I think only an actor of Hugh Grant's stature could play this part. I mean, I would think, oh, maybe you could see Richard Grant do it because he's also, uh, you know, he could play that thing. But there was something about Hugh Grant, and I think what you need to see is the lovableness. Like, he has to be, when he's at the fair and the beautiful carnival, people are excited to see him. Yes, he may be an actor that has... uh, fallen on not even really fallen on hard times just well, 
but for him have to those those dog food commercials are sad. He's eating yeah. the food that they say humans can't even eat, and he's doing it for money. Very sad. Of course, yes. So I mean, you know, like all right, yes. Uh, but but I guess what you need is somebody who is lovable, right? Like I, at a certain level, Channing like, and th- Tatum. Okay, I'll just I'll just fan older, cast Channing Tatum two weeks in a row. <laughs> all right, there we go. Uh, but I mean, I think, but I think that that mo- I think you're right. Like, even if you don't know necessarily who Hugh Grant is, he's recognizable. And I think you want that. I think you just need that for the movie to work. I mean, Nicolas Cage. That's a a prime example. I don't think it needs to be Hugh Grant, but I think it was a inspired uh, casting choice. Well, the idea that you immediately went to Richard Grant makes me think that you have in you some sort of ghost of love, actually, that you are not able to escape. Perhaps (laughs) it is the aura of the fact that Paddington himself was supposed to be voiced by Colin Firth so that Paddington himself, you know, would have arrived sounding something closer to this. Bonita Aurelia. Eu vir aqui para te pedir para casar comigo. Well, I mean... It's bound to happen. Whenever you do these British Cannonball Run movies, I, I mean that lovingly, like it's every great British actor is in them. So there's always going to be overlap. I mean, the by Paddington 3, it, everyone from Love Actually that is still alive will be in uh, all the Paddington series. Uh, I mean, same thing with Harry Potter. Emma Thompson. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. <laughs> she mean, would have been a great villain. She could have played the Hugh Grant character. E- oh, yeah. She oh, would have been, been so fun. Or she could have been a better taxidermist than Nicole Kidman. No, no diss on Nicole Kidman. But if we're no. going to be like this British about it, she should have been in the first one. Well, Amy, you're not too far off because Emma Thompson actually did a punch up on the Paddington One script. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. There, it all comes together. But but to the Colin Firth thing, like this relationship with Colin Firth went pretty deep. Like he was the voice of Paddington, like all through principal photography on the first one. He's even announced in the first teaser that they did for Paddington that he'll be the voice of Paddington. And then the, he did, they did what, what Firth called in an interview, a conscious uncoupling, where they, they realized that his voice just really wasn't right for it. I mean, this is the producer talking about it. Initially, we'd had Colin Firth as the voice of Paddington, and, and, and uh, he was wonderful, but his chocolatey tones were too deep and, frankly, too mature. The two did not fit. Colin realized it even before we did. Um, and then we went about trying to find the right person, and Ben Whishaw came. You know, Paul cast Ben Whishaw, and he is brilliant. I think he has a slight, he's more youthful. He's funny, but he's got a voice that's slightly other, which felt appropriate for a bear. I mean, to me, I think that kind of makes a little bit of sense, right? Like, if there is something in Colin Firth that I think has just a hair too much gravitas. Mm. Yeah, I think you need somebody who sounds younger or at least more guileless. Well, there's something really interesting about the voice of Ben Whitshaw because it's not, or at least to me, not immediately recognizable. Like you're not being caught thinking like, oh, who is that? Or or picturing right. someone else. Like, And I know Ben Whitshaw has grown to quite some success, but I think without his face, you are able to really let Paddington just be this character. Like I don't, I can't, I don't picture Ben Whitshaw. I don't, I'm not picturing Q uh, throughout all of this. And you know, he's done some other amazing work as well. But, but you know, I just, I think it is a tricky thing because if you go the route of, oh my gosh, it's blank as this, you know, 
right. character, it, you lose some of the charm of it. I think you want it to be a little bit more... Um, right. I don't know why, but like, yeah. I'm automatically thinking of Angelina Jolie and all the Kung Fu Panda movies. Mm. Which for some reason I just always have gotten tripped up but on. But that's a dream that's a DreamWorks thing, right? So DreamWorks is always casting huge stars, and part of it is the fun of those huge stars, you know, being these voices. But what I really liked about Lightyear, going back to that, was that Socks was played by an animator, a Pixar animator. It wasn't a famous pull. And and I think there are those characters that sometimes you relate to better because you just there's something unique about it. It's not like, oh, that's Jack Black. And Jack Black is great at Kung Fu Panda. Yeah. But there is a nice element of, ooh, I'm just this character. I'm a, I'm attached to a character, not my famous actor that I like who is doing this character. No, you're right. Because I want to be able to kind of sink in and just see the character as the character. Mm-hmm. Whereas it's true. Like whenever I watch like Kung Fu Panda, which is not often for as much as I'm talking All about it right time. now. You're always watching it. I don't even think I see a panda. I think I just hear Jack Black. Right. It's like as if Jack Black was, yeah, doing, I, I know what you're saying. It's a, it's a subtle distinction. It's a subtle distinction. But um, that's so interesting. And I think really something that people wrestle with all the time, like, you know, when you see it animated, an idea in your head, or even though the performance is good, it has nothing to do with the performance often. It's really, I think it's a mix of a lot of different things. The other voices in it, the way it's drawn or the way it's animated. And uh, I like that he he backed off. Um, it's really interesting. And and, and what a bold, uh, you know, bold move to do, to be able to see yourself having something right there in your hand and, and walking away from it. It's true. Although, you know what I kind of can't help but wonder is like, why is Paddington so perfectly British sounding? Because I get that he's like such a fundamentally British character. You want a British character mm-hmm. to sound British. Sure, sure, sure. I get that argument. But also the whole point of Paddington is that he's an immigrant to this town learning the oh. ways. And it feels like it's kind of softened because he just sounds like he went to like a proper, you know, school in London That's so somewhere. interesting. I never thought about that. He sounds exactly like everyone else. Yeah, he sounds like everybody else. I was like, I mean, I, like what would it add to Paddington if he was voiced by... My dream casting, if we went this route, would be like Pedro Pascal, who we just heard mm. in that like unbearable way to massive talent clip. I think he is so funny, and I think he could definitely do a Paddington voice. And the accent would be reminding you that this is not his country. You know that he, this is a story about somebody adapting. I mean, you well, actually. Well, I have- mean, you, you're talking about you know putting Pedro Pascal there, but you know, for me, I want to keep it true to you know Peru and say like let let's put. Uh, you know, Fernando Fernand Gomez there, or, or uh, you know, Henry Ian Cusack, <laughs> uh, Christian Meyer, Salvador de Solar, you know, any of these Peruvian actors that we all know. Uh, we about. could put my ex-boyfriend in. He's Peruvian. I think he'd do all a right. really good job. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, and actually to that whole point, like, you know, we were talking about Bond creating this character back in the day, like Bond intended Paddington to come from Africa. Like he wanted Paddington to like represent like an African immigrant, which was a very specifically big thing that was happening in London in the 50s. Like the neighborhood where he lives is not far from a neighborhood where there were actually like white racists in England beating up African and Caribbean immigrants. That's the neighborhood in the 50s where Paddington is living. So there was like this kind of historical subtext to making Paddington be from Africa in the 1950s. But 
his agent was like, there are no bears in Africa. And I feel like you don't want to teach kids that there are bears in Africa. Like kids will believe you if you say there are bears in Africa. So he has to be from somewhere else. So Michael Bond went to the library and he like looked up all these bears. And he went to the zoo and he finally settled on Peru. But if you think about it, I mean, talking about like actors doing accents in this movie, we have in here this whole giant character of Jim Broadbent putting on a Hungarian accent to play Samuel Gruber, the guy who owns the antique shop, because it was really important to Bond when he wrote these books that you have a secondary immigrant character. Like to him, Gruber, who owns the, the antique bookstore, he was supposed to be kind of modeled on like his agent who was a German Jew who like came over to England to kind of save his life. Like he was warned that his name was on the list. So he came to England with only 25 pounds to his name and then like built his whole life here, kind of had to rebuild. And so he thought it was important to give Paddington a friend who knew exactly what he was coming through, you know, as like a Jewish, German, Hungarian, Jewish immigrant to America. And so I love their scenes together. He's like, that's why they're so kind of polite and formal to each other in a way. They they have this old world type of of speaking to each other. But but I think that's, I don't know. I think that's very special. I love that. And, you know, we were just to go back to the voice of Paddington and how specific it needed to be. There was somebody who had a very interesting voice who did Paddington, not here in the States and not in the UK. But that person, I don't know if you know this, is President Zelensky. Uh, which we can hear a clip of him doing it right now. Oh, Have you ever gone on like Zelensky YouTube holes where you just see his entire weird career of YouTube clips? No, I didn't understand his whole background was as an actor who even played the president on a TV show at a certain point. Like, uh, but his voice, I think, for Paddington was pretty good. I think it was really good. No, he's got this whole sketch comedy background. There's clips where he's like pretending to play the drums. No, the keyboard with his penis. Like <laughs> he he won Dancing with the Stars, I think. Wow. Like he has this whole backdrop. I mean, Ukraine has fun presidents sometimes. When I was there, their president owned like this giant candy shop company. It was a very good candy store. It was like if Wonka was president, like the candy store had like moving parts and like machinery that draped candy and stuff was just good. It was like a toy. It was like the greatest toy story that was also a candy shop. And it was run by the president. Wow. That's blowing my mind. <laughs> I love all of this. You oh, know, which, ah, which reminds me, as terrified as I am to say this, that the next movie that Paul King and Simon Farnaby, the writer of this, are doing is a Wonka preview, prequel, I which is like a movie heard. I don't really want I'm to exist, but I'm like, nervous. right, I should know. we trust them? Maybe. I think that this movie allows us to believe that they can deliver something that is true. And if you think you don't know who Simon Farnaby is, we do because he's in Paddington 1 and Paddington 2. He has a great sequence in this film. He's a security guard in the, the chapel or the church. He yells at the nun. You have that great flashback scene of him. He's very funny. He's on uh, Ghosts. Uh, but he's a really interesting... Um, I kind of m met him or met him, you know, visually <laughs> through the Mighty Boosh and, and seeing, you know, this him pop up in that world. You know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of uh, of those guys. And so that's how I kind of got to know him. Let's play a little bit of Mighty Boosh. This is like them singing a song about how ice will kill you. Oh my God! Ice flow, nowhere to go. Ice flow, nowhere to go. Lost in the blinding whiteness of the tundra. 
check him out. Oh. Little Johnny Frostbite moving around, freezing you up, freezing you down like an icicle. Coming in your tent in the pink light, scissorbite. Arctic death, infinite night, call me Tundra Boy because I move like an Arctic lizard. When the blizzard strikes, I disappear like a pipe dream. All that's left is a gleam. On a tent peg, boosh, boosh, stronger than a moose. Don't block your door or we come through your rooftop. Stop, look around, take your mind off the floor because the boosh is loose and we're a little bit I'm Katie Rich. I'm one of the hosts of Vanity Fair's Little Gold Men podcast. Every week, we cover the ups and downs of the Oscar race, from Barbenheimer to the Golden Globes controversy, and much more. We also have weekly interviews with some of the year's biggest contenders, like Emma Stone, Paul Giamatti, and America Ferreira. Whether you're a Hollywood insider or just want to win your office's Oscar pool, Listen to Little Gold Men, available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now. But I want to just talk about the way that this movie looks, like because it's not simply directed. It's beautifully directed. Mighty Boosh has such style and was done on such a smaller budget. But this movie... Um, I don't want to devalue it by saying these two comparisons because it seems like, oh, well, it's derivative. It's not derivative. It just, there are things in it that You're make me- You're going to say three, two, one, Grand Budapest Hotel. Uh, well, I was going to say Wes <gasps> Anderson and, <laughs> and then, but, but I was also going to say Amelie. Ah. You know, the, this idea of, of so many colors and everything like really pops and it's beautiful. There's something a little bit, precious about Wes Anderson that I don't find in the Paddington movies. And maybe that's the style in which it's directed, or maybe it's simply that Amelie feels like she's living in this world that's kind of exploding around her. And I feel like Paddington lives in a world that is exploding around him that, you know, it's like, I feel sometimes feel like I'm, when I'm watching Wes Anderson, you don't want to touch anything here. I was very happy to touch it all. You want to touch it all? I want to touch it all, Amy. That's the shirt. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, th- like that that idea, and I think part of it is, and I'm, I'm just wrestling with, from a directing standpoint, Paul King is able to go, here are verbal jokes, here are visual jokes, and then he creates these set pieces that are straight up uh, Harold Lloyd, Charlie Chaplin, like these are old school pieces. We talk about, can these things exist? And I've made my point that Jackass is the modern Harold Lloyd, but these are silent movie gags. Like they are the sequences throughout the film, whether it's making marmalade in the jail, whether it is washing windows, cutting hair, uh, brushing teeth. There are so many sequences where we're watching a CGI bear do some of the best physical comedy. And I think it's hard to just think about how hard that is to do, to make an inanimate object We've seen it attack cities. We've seen it be scary, but we've never seen an inanimate object in a real world do pratfalls, Charlie Chaplin level pratfalls. And I was thinking, my gosh, that's what we should be doing more of because you can create their bodies to do anything you want. You can, you can make them so alive and, and you could, you know, those sequences are, I think that Charlie Chaplin, well, maybe he'd be mad, like computers are taking away his jobs, but, but I think would be impressed with 
what they're doing there, like with the way that they're able to, through comedy, do these uh, very physical pieces like they. Right. And even draw that kind of like glaring neon light sign around it by doing like the Chaplin clock gear thing when like Mm -hmm. Paddington is escaping from prison. He like goes up through the gears just like Chaplin did in modern times. I mean, that's like the international symbol for, yes, I have seen a Chaplin movie is putting that in your movie. It's funny, like thinking back to to Jackie Chan too, because Jackie Chan's gags, a lot of them are like really reminiscent of like Buster Keaton in particular. Yes. And it's funny because when Jackie Chan began to be interviewed by the Western press, they'd be like, you must love Buster Keaton. And he could tell that if he said yes, they'd be really happy. So he would always just say, yes, yes, I love it. And then the interviewer would love him and then they'd have a nice moment and they'd both smile about it. But later on, he was like, I had never seen a Buster Keaton movie. I didn't know what they were talking about, but I knew it made (laughs) them happy for, for me just to agree with them. But they're, but like, I mean, one thing all of those people have in common, uh, Buster Keaton, Jackie Chan and Paddington is doing climactic sequences on trains. Yes, you're right about that. I mean, and by the way, Hugh Bonneville is doing some of the most impressive stunt work there connected to two trains, very Jean-Claude Van Damme on uh, Between the Two Mack Trucks commercial. (laughs) Yeah, getting to show off his yoga stretch. I mean, that's actually a moment I wanted to talk to you about because like we just had a whole episode in which we genuinely raved about how amazing it was to see Jackie Chan and Michelle Yeoh do real stunts on a real train. And then we immediately pivot one week later to seeing Hugh Bonneville do a Jean-Claude Van Damme yoga stretch between two two trains that we know is a thousand percent false. Absolutely no way did that man do that stunt. And yet the tone of this movie makes it okay, right? Like the tone of this movie makes it okay that Hugh Grant is walking on the train like it's absolutely no big deal. He's standing upright, barely seems like wind swept. And he's just sort of slowly walking towards Paddington on a speeding train, like nothing could possibly be going wrong for him. I mean, we just, we, we talked for five minutes about how amazing it was to watch Jackie Chan run slightly uphill and get tired. And this is like the 180 degree opposite of that. I, I totally agree. Uh, I mean, well, I guess the question is, is it cheating or is it still impressive to see something that is not done? But like, because the movie is still giving you that thrill, but they're not actually doing it. Like, do you feel like you were cheated in some way? Well, it's weird, right? Like, maybe, maybe it's this. Maybe if the movie was about Paddington and his family doing heroic acts to save the day. And that was the crux of it. And this centerpiece heroic act was so obviously phony. I'd be like, eh, a little corny, little weak. I'm not buying this moment. But if it is true, as I think it is true that we're arguing here, that the crux of this movie is Paddington heroically just being nice to people and then people gathering around him and that being the thrust of the movie more than the actual train caper, then who cares if the train is false? If you believe genuinely that the emotion is real, the emotion of him being nice and and the village rising to help him. And I also think that we are talking about a movie that falls kind of in the middle between animation and live action, right? So I'm not upset that the stunts in Tom and Jerry aren't done by real stunt people. doesn't make those bits not work, right? Because I think it's this merging of two formats. And, and obviously, like, well... You what know, if Hubana, I told you that Tom and Jerry was mocap? I Well, you know what? I would know it because I auditioned for it. I didn't get it. Uh, but I was oh. going to say that I actually did uh, a mocap audition for 
the Beatles Yellow Submarine movie that Robert Zemeckis was going to do that uh, was never was like shit canned very early on after I think the Polar Express just ate ate it. <laughs> uh, and it was such a bizarre bizarre thing to be like trying to be Ringo. Also, when these characters, when most of the Beatles at that point were alive uh, and could have easily done their own voice. You voices. would have been Ringo? Ringo's my favorite I definitely, Beatle. I know. I was very excited. I, I did. I mean, I auditioned for something. It was so weird. I was in a room and they, I feel like they made us do things that felt like odd. Like you're an octopus and you're, it's like, well, I don't need to, like you would have dots on me. I don't have to be like, oh, it was, but anyway. We'll get into mocap, my adventures in mocap. But uh, but yeah, that that's uh Well So okay. yes, I'm ready for the Tom and Jerry movie. If they come calling, I will do some more nonverbal uh, vocalizations of uh of Jerry and Tom, because both of them don't speak. No. It wasn't terrible. It wasn't terrible. It was okay, we'll tell you what. Wait, wait, you you mean the new one? I've seen it. It's it I own it and it's a DVD in my car that is often played, uh, and I listen to it all the time. It's not bad. <laughs> It's not, bad. Not bad. it's not bad. Say, it's not bad. It's not bad. I will say officially that it is not bad. No, um, it's got a great cast in it. Like, I mean, a surprising cast in it. I mean, Michael Pena, uh, very funny in it. Uh, and also Chloe Grace Moritz is the, is the lead. Uh, you know, you got you got some you got some good people in that movie. One of gotta, my favorite non-vocal verbalization scenes in this movie, which is when all of the prisoners are tasting the marmalade and moaning for joy. It sounds something like this. I love that sequence so much. And I and I think I'm not going to try to put too much weight on this. And I'm not trying to look at this in a bigger way. But I do think, you know, this movie also says something really interesting about, like, the prison system. You know, and the idea that, like, people are brought into this system and they are dehumanized. And Paddington is there for stealing a book, right? Um, some damage, 10 years he gets, right? And there are people that, have committed heinous acts and they deserve to live a life without, uh, you know, all the great things that we have to offer. But there's something really interesting about this movie talking about how you dehumanize people. Like you, you let them lose a part of themselves while they're there and, and giving that back to them, giving them, giving them something to live for. And, and not that, that, that is, universal with every prism and you know but there this idea that like you're in a you're in a you know a decade-long time out so i did think it was interesting to even talk about prisoners and give them this personality and and give them things that i know it's probably oh the joke is well like you know this tough guy likes to make you know food and that's not funny but it's like but there is something about we all have things that we're passionate about. And I think that the movie does a really good job of, of underscoring that. And maybe, like you said, it's 90 seconds, but for, for a movie that is a lean hour and 42 minutes, if you have 12 uh, 90 second arcs, uh, that's that's the majority of the movie. I'll take it. Okay, touche. I mean, I'll say that I love Brendan Gleeson just across the board and pretty much everything. What I really love about him as Knuckles McGinty is Knuckles 
does have his arc. He does change. He doesn't change as fast as we expect him to, which I respect that like Knuckles breaks out of prison and is like, I'm sorry, Bear, but you are on your own. I have to get out of here. I lied to you. That it's a little bit of like the frog and the scorpion at that moment where he's like, look, I was a convict when you broke out. What I mean, I'm not going to help you clear your name. I got to go. That Knuckles has not completely redeemed because of Marmalade. But there's these little details in Brendan Gleeson's performance where you see that Knuckles is just tough because he's lived in a really tough world in that he is, you know, an autodidact. Like that he has lived in a world where nobody said the word baguette aloud to him. So he had to just make up his own pronunciation. You listen to me, you little maggot. Listening? Nobody criticizes my food. Right. Nobody squirts condiments on my apron. Got it. And nobody bonks me on the head with a baguette. No bonking. That moment means so much to me because like, we, we've talked about this. I'm a person who mispronounces a lot of words. Me You're too. You're a person who mispronounces a lot of words. We're all people who mispronounce words. And I think, I think mispronouncing words is a badge of honor because it says, I have learned this word through reading. Nobody told it to me. I found it. Yes. I went and seized this world on my word on my own and I brought it back. And yes, there are some words that I continue to say wrong just out of stubbornness because I believe that the way that I came up with it in my head should be correct. And I'm just going to stubbornly keep doing it. Bagwet, not really. But like, it's just, it adds a wrinkle to that character. Even the way that he says marmalade. What is this? It's a marmalade sandwich. Marmalade? That one's not necessarily him mispronouncing the word. It's just him reverting to a childlike state to see like a tender side of Knuckles that Brendan also does, just only with that voice and a little bit of glint in his eye. I mean, that kind of stuff isn't even necessarily on the page. It's in the performance. And that is why Brendan Gleeson, National Treasure. And I will say that all these performers have a, a storied career of being in amazing films, doing brilliant performances. And I do think that when you get writing that's so good and you put these actors that are so brilliant together, you can really get something incredibly special because they don't often get to do these things. You don't get to, it's a different flavor of them. I think you saw a lot of that in the Harry Potter films as well. Like you got to see, you know, uh, different performances. And I think even different directors in those movies brought out different things. And, 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 uh, but this film in particular, I think does a lot of casting that, you know, you're used to seeing maybe somebody do a little bit more drama. You're used to seeing somebody do, uh, you know, something where they're not smiling that much. And and I really do. I think that's part of the charm of it as well. It's like, yes, we're hearing this voice that we don't really know, but we also are seeing these people that we do know doing something that feels it's the people that we love, but we're not seeing them in a lovable way a lot of the times. Maybe. Eh, maybe. I don't know. Well, in many ways, we're we're watching a Mike Lee movie, you know, like you know, like a lot of these people have been in Mike Lee movies too. Uh, but anyway, uh, I digress to say that I just uh, yeah. You know, I'm thinking about something you actually said a couple of minutes ago, which is you were talking about like, is this movie saying something about prison reform? And I think I think yes, and I think it wouldn't be out of line for them to even add that in because like Michael Bond, you know. Um, who I think is just such a touchstone. I love continuing to talk about him in this. I think his heart was really aligned in that way because in 2008, you know, when the first seeds of this movie were slowly starting to come together, he released a book on Paddington's 50th anniversary that opens with a short story where Paddington has his cart stolen. You know, he always has a little push cart. Paddington gets his cart stolen at a grocery store. So he goes to a police station for help. 
And when he goes into the police station, the cop at the police station immediately profiles Paddington as a foreigner and starts like yelling at him for not paying his taxes. And they have this huge miscommunication that winds up with the police officer handcuffing Paddington. And that's how the book opens. The 50th anniversary Paddington book opens with him being yelled at for being a foreigner and getting handcuffed by the cops when he goes there for help. I think Michael Bond is a very pointed political person using this character. And so, yeah, I think it would be in keeping with Michael Bond to add that. It would almost be like not in keeping with Michael Bond to not have a political subtext to this movie. And we, I do want to say, like, Michael Bond alive when this movie is made. You know, he dies on the very last day that Paddington 2 is being filmed. Oh, wow. uh, he died, Yeah, he died at the age of 91 years old. And in his lifetime, I mean, his Paddington book sold like 35 million copies, at least, probably more, now that these books have been coming out. And when he was buried, uh, the epitaph on his gravestone said, please look after this bear. Thank you. Oh. A very good man. Thank very you, Very good man. And, and what a, and I think that, ah, like this film, uh, you know, captures that energy of, of a person. It does a great job of paying homage to the original source material uh, I think I read an article that said, you know, th- this is a movie where you're not going to hear a top 40 hit dropped in here. You're not going to hear a fart sound. Uh, I get knocked down. <laughs> what do I get up again? And I think there is a way to do these stories right. Maybe you can only British could do it. I think that Disney Pixar uh, have their own way of doing this. But this feels to me like a very special film, um, a movie that connects it was so many people across the board. And I think it it can't go without acknowledging like this movie did get a hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes at one point. And I'm sure some maybe your buddy Armand White, you know, came in and says, I don't believe that bears would be able to walk around with jackets, but um, you know, would come on and say something. But it's like, but the the same thing that you have to look at those movies that get a hundred percent. hundred percent is a rare, is a really rare thing. And regardless of whether or not you believe in Rotten Tomatoes system, but just to have that much agreement on something is, I think, makes you go, well, this is a special movie. This is something that is, you know, I don't even know if it's debatable because it it, it seems to me that everyone agrees. Yeah. 245 reviews on Rotten Tomatoes gave this a fresh. The 246th was a Brit who reviews for the BBC radio. And they finally got around to writing down their thoughts onto a blog to put their blog up, to put their blog on Rotten Tomatoes and kill the 100%. And this is what they wrote. Paddington is voiced by Ben Wishaw and sounds like a member of some indie pop band coming down from an agonizing ketamine high. And that's just the start of what's wrong. Oh boy. Paddington's adventures are traditionally small scale, putting up some wallpaper, fixing a tap. The Paddington movies see him going to jail, organizing a prison break, or running along the roofs of moving trains like Indiana Jones. That ain't my Paddington bear, to be sure. Instead of the button eyes and cheerful demeanor, this Paddington has evil beady eyes and ratty fur. Considerations of race and identity, key to the Paddington character, are not addressed, and the situations that this Paddington finds himself in are contrived and ridiculous. It simply shouldn't happen to a bear. This is not my Paddington bear. It is a sinister, malevolent imposter who should be, oh, shot into space, or nuked from space at the first opportunity. Overconfident, snide, and sullen, this manky-looking bear bears little relation to the classic character, and viewers should be warned, this ain't yo mama's Paddington bear. And it won't be yours either. 
Maybe if you've never seen the TV show and don't know any better, this will work. But long-term Paddington fans will find this too much to bear. Wow, wow, wow. You know, and uh, I, I wonder how, well, I mean, yeah, sure. Well, I have nothing to say Shot about Shot into that. space. We're in 100% agreement. I mean, there it is. <laughs> uh, but I do think it's, it's a movie that's really worthy of talking about because I do think this is a movie like the books that will stand the test of time. It, it is oddly timeless without feeling uh, like it's out of time, if that makes sense, right? Like it, it feels like it creates its own world. Um, the characters are so kind of wonderful. I, I truly uh, am just impressed by this movie. It makes me feel good. It makes me, uh, you know, I think when I look at the list of movies that gotten a 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, a lot of stand-up specials. I think that that's interesting. And I think there's a lot of uh, docs in there too, but let's just take the docs out for a second and say the stand-up specials because I think stand-up specials make you feel good, right? They make, they make you laugh and you go, oh my gosh, well, I, I laughed, it did its job 100%, right? Um, and the other ones, once you get uh, rid of the stand-up specials and the docs, you come to these movies, these bigger movies, Battleship Potemkin, uh, Anatomy of a Murder, 12 Angry Men, Henry V, uh, heavy movies, important movies, Citizen Kane. Um, and it's rare to get a movie that I think just makes you feel good, that feels light. Like, is it okay? Like, it doesn't, is it heavier? Do I need it? And and we talk about this a lot. Like, there should be room for these movies that make you love movies, want to watch, you know, like, I am so content watching this movie. The music is wonderful. The, you know, it's beautiful to look at. The characters are great. The acting is great. And I think that we sometimes are really hard on movies that make us laugh, movies that like make us feel like we will say, hey, Chris Rock's Tambourine, 100%, absolutely. But this Paddington movie, well, it doesn't deserve 100%. I mean, it's a, it's a kid's movie. It's a, you know, it's like, uh, I mean, not that people are saying that, but it's, it's hard for us to sometimes get out of our own way. And this movie, the fact that it broke through on some level and got like, I, I love that. I wonder, do we have characters in America that represent our consciousness the way that England has people like Wallace and Gromit, Harry Potter and Paddington too, to that extent, because like, yes, we all critics agree. It's wonderful. But Paddington is like above and beyond. Paddington is like when Queen Elizabeth just had her platinum Jubilee this summer, you know, the the platinum Jubilee that, that played on television opened up with the queen having marmalade with Paddington. Um, Perhaps you would like a marmalade sandwich. I always keep one for emergencies. So do I. I keep mine in here. Oh. For later. The party is about to start, Your Majesty. Happy Jubilee, ma'am. And thank you for everything. That's very kind. I mean, that is, that is, that is major. And they do have something weird in common, which is like when Paddington shows up in the books, um, Miss Bird, uh, the, you know, the housekeeper figure, uh, she's like, well, we don't know his birthday. So let's give him two birthdays, just like the queen. And I was like, oh yeah, the queen has two birthdays. Because did you know this about the queen? Like the queen has two birthdays. She has her actual birthday, which is in April. 
mm-hmm. in case April has terrible weather, her her other birthday, the one that we just celebrated, the Platinum Jubilee, is in June. They celebrate it then because they know that uh, they'll definitely have good weather. So they give hilarious. her two birthdays. And like that, Paddington has two birthdays as well. She's been a queen for a really long time, man. But like, well, who... I'm thinking. I, I'm thinking. I have a couple. I have a couple ideas. That I would yeah. throw out at you. Okay, our heroes. Well, how about like somebody like Ripley from Aliens? You're telling me on Joe Biden's birthday, it's going to open with him having pancakes with Ripley. Well, but she's in a, one of those direct TV commercials, so it's not the same thing. Uh, I mean, Han Solo is another one. You know, Han Solo know, having uh, omelets with Biden. By the way, you could see Han Solo. You know, like a lot of these people. Well, I guess I was going to say a lot of these people were, you know, popped into. Obama's administration. I don't see like Biden doing as many photo ops. But how about this? I have a I have a great American character, uh, truly, and I think this is a character that you could make an argument has done that. Rocky Balboa, like Rocky, and and I would even maybe further it out and say Creed, are the this character that that in many ways the American dream, right? A little bit of this this person that we aspire to be, the underdog. People count that person out and they rise up. You know, there there's something about that character that is a universal kind of an American character. And I'm, I'm talking about characters that are also that come back because the other one I would say next to that would be Batman. Batman and Biden. Batman. Having smoothies. <laughs> but well, I mean, let's take out the president and go like if you were to if you were to make one right. It, I think Rocky has had his own statue. Uh, you know, Batman has his own statue right here, in, right here in Burbank. If you uh, go to the movie theater, you see him right out front. But there is something about this defender, this, you know, Batman defends people. You know, I, there's a lot of violent American characters. Right? I know, that's what I'm just back. thinking. They get a sweet Baron Wallace and Gromit and we're like, Batman. We're like, somebody who has a gun. Who has a yeah. gun? Yeah. Oh, don't uh, we have anybody cuddly? I know we. I mean, and you know, maybe there are some. You know, uh, I mean, Mickey Mouse is interesting because I've always said like Mickey Mouse has no personality. Yeah. You know, but there's no personality in Mickey Mouse. You know, Mickey Mouse is just a thing. We Shrek. You know, uh, what, what, what are we talking about? Like, you know, there it, oh, it, oh, oh, Kermit oh, the Frog. Oh, 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 Big Bird. Yeah, yeah Big Bird and Kermit. Okay. okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. There we go. Yeah. There's, there's some American characters okay. that we can get cuddly with. Big but again, Bird, Biden, Cuber. I mean, I think they've all hung out even. I, has, I bet if I Googled it, there's probably Biden hanging out with Big Bird, don't you think? I am sure that Biden and Big Bird are together. Um, and I'm sure Lauren, uh, I'm sure that uh, Lauren Boebert would be very upset about that. But no, uh, actually, as a matter of fact, President Biden uh, congratulated Big Bird uh, for getting vaccinated, I believe. Oh. Uh, yeah. Well, there we go. Okay, so we do have somebody that makes me feel a little bit and better. And I, right. I was right what? because a Texas senator <laughs> accused by <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> a Texas senator uh, accused uh, uh, Biden and Sesame Street of propaganda. Uh, so uh, there you go. Uh, this so, is why we can't have nice things, people. <laughs> and by the way, that Texas senator was, of course, our uh, your friend and mine, Ted Cruz. Oh, yes. Who means every single thing he says. Yes. So uh, <laughs> so there we go. Uh, so Biden <laughs> Biden uh, pisses off the right by hanging out with Big Bird and saying, good job on getting your shot. Anyway, uh, Amy, this has been a really interesting hero. Uh, I'm glad that we got to talk about this movie because I think we referenced it a lot. I think it pulls together a lot of things that we have been talking about. Like all these movies are having in conversation with themselves. And this is a movie I know we haven't really... We don't talk about this often, and we'll get to our episode where we kind of go back over our last 
year and look at what we've been talking about and say, what, what do we put on the list? But I will say right now, this movie for me at this point goes on the list unequivocally really? on the list. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely on the list. I'm not there yet. Okay. But I don't hate it, but I'm not there yet. Okay. All right. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, um, we will have a chance to debate later on. I just want to say that for me, this is a no brainer. This is a no, no brainer uh, of a film to put on the list. Um, <laughs> now, where do you want to go next week for our heroes series? Where should we go? What should we be talking about? Who is next? You know, we've talked about some of our American heroes in this uh, episode right here. I think I'm ready for another strong pivot. Okay. Uh, all right. Let's do something American. Let's do something. We've, we've been traveling the world. Let's go back and do something proper, proper, proper American. Okay. So our hero is who, Amy? Let's do somebody who uh, has actually spent their own tiny amount of time in prison. Let's do, uh, let's do Wesley Snipes and Blade. Whoa, I love it. I love it. Blade, uh, I mean, an American character created in 1973 from Marvel Comics uh, is, uh, this is great, has been uh, seen alongside Peter Parker in Spider-Man and is going to be the source of a new upcoming Marvel film, which I'm very excited about as well. But I can't wait to go back into the original Blade. I remember liking Blade 2 more, but maybe I'm just wrong on that. I don't know. I'm excited to go watch and and see what is what is there for me because the second film Blade Two directed by our friend uh, Guillermo del Toro uh, a classic a uh, classic feature film uh, but uh, let's uh, take a listen to the trailer. You better wake up. The world you live in is just a sugar coated topping. There is another world beneath it. The real world. For thousands of years, they have existed among us. You keep your eyes open. They're everywhere. Chances are you've seen them yourself and didn't know it. A secret nation. Our livelihood depends on our ability to blend in. With a lust for power. We should be ruling the humans. These people are our food. They've got their claws into everything. Politics, finance, real estate. There's a war going on out there. He makes the weapons. I use them. Now, one will lead them to conquer mankind. Tonight, the age of man comes to an end. We're gonna be gods. And one will try to stop him dead. There are worse things out tonight than vampires. Like what? Like me. All right, uh, Blade is available uh, wherever you get your movie streaming, but also uh, it's on HBO Max. Um, Amy, I always like to tell people that they can visit our uh, t-shirt shop, at uh, tpublic.com. Just type in unspooled in the search bar and you'll see some of our great shirts there. We got some new shirts and and you can make them into stickers or mugs or whatever you want to do. I also want to give a shout out to our uh, producers, Josh Richmond, Molly Reynolds, Devin Bryant, who also uh, EQs these entire episodes. And a big uh, shout out to uh, Ryan Connor and Jacob Morton, uh, everybody who puts this show together and everybody at Earwolf. Um, and finally, if you want to keep this conversation going, please head on over to the discord at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. There's a giant unspooled section. You can keep up with all the threads about every film that we've been doing. Uh, there's a great community there. It's a nice social media interaction. You can also check out our Facebook group. 
Um, and uh, you can argue there about whether or not Paddington 2 belongs on that spaceship. Um, Amy, excited for next week. Excited to talk about Blade. And uh, if anyone's a fan of how did this get made, wanted to let you all know that our summer tour is happening this August. So check out hdtgm.com for any details on that. Amy, anything you want to plug? Absolutely not. Uh, I'm just happy to be here. All right, great. Uh, we will see you next week for Blade. <laughs>